So this theme of from small talk to big talk. Um, to me, the greatest use of every day is to share the gospel with somebody. I think it's a wonderful thing, at last thing at night, just to reflect on what has happened over the day. And to me, a day is redeemed if I've been able to share the gospel with some unconverted friend. And I'd argue further than that, that all the occurrences, all the, the things that happen to us in life, we should seek prayerfully and intentionally to be opportunities to share the gospel. Um, David Earnshaw again if I may mention him and if I can just pinch one of his illustrations um, he showed me a book that he'd been reading uh, the biography of R.C. Morgan now most of us have never heard of R.C. Morgan but he was a, the editor of a Christian newspaper in the Victorian era he had two sons one of those sons wrote his, his biography the other son had gone swimming as a teenager. He'd just gone swimming in a river in London. It wasn't the Thames. I've forgotten which one it was. But some, I suppose, mischievous boys had taken down the sign in the river which said, Danger, currents, don't swim here. But they'd removed it. So R.C. Morgan's son just, you know, he saw it. He was innocent. He, he took off his clothes. He put the clothes down by the riverside and he went swimming. But he got into difficulty. And uh, he put out his arm, crying for help, but those same boys just kicked his arm, and he drowned. Now, those same boys went and rifled through his clothes and took everything they could. But in some ways, that's an incidental, because quickly, news got to R.C. Morgan. So quickly, of course, he left the office where he was working and made his way to the site where he'd heard that his, father, his brother had been drowned. By the time he arrived, there was quite a crowd gathered by the shoreline. And the police were there trying to dredge the river and, and get the body of this boy. And of course, eventually, the body was brought up. And there was his son, and they laid him on the shore. And, well, what would you do now if you were R.C. Morgan? With the dead body of his son in front of him, but the crowd looking on, he stood, and you can imagine the, the tears in his eyes as he said, I, I want you all to know, this, this is my son, and I'm absolutely heartbroken. But I do want you to know as well, my son was a Christian, and he's now in heaven, and he went on at that moment to preach the gospel. Talk about taking the opportunities of life. Well, R.C. Morgan's other son is the one who wrote the biographies of his father, and he puts a little footnote then. Now, if I'd been him, I would have put it in the main body of the text. But anyway, he just used it as a footnote, and he said, 20 years later, I found myself in a hosiery shop, and I felt constrained to witness to the person behind the counter. And the man behind the counter said, well, actually, I am a Christian. But you know, he was just wanting to check and make sure. He said, well, all right, how, when, when did you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? And this is what the shopkeeper said. Twenty years ago, I was in a crowd. And we were watching the police dredge the river to pull up a body. And sure enough, they did. And do you know, uh, it was a young boy who drowned. But the father, he just stood and spoke and he preached the gospel and there and then I was converted to Christ. Can you imagine how this biographer felt? His father had preached, this man was converted, his son had died, but... Wow. A person had been converted. The idea of going into every new day with the intention of sharing the gospel and taking the very things that happen to us as opportunities. Well... Tony read to us from Mark 4. It's a lovely, lovely parable, isn't it? And there's so much in it. But I want to draw from it, if I may, four practical truths. And I want to be very practical tonight. I want to tell stories, of course, but I want to be practical and sort of encourage and help us in our personal evangelism. I want to say, first of all, that we need to get the right seed. So Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven and he says, look, it's about sowing seed. But we need to get the right seed seed Jesus didn't say the kingdom of God is about giving porridge for the poor Jesus didn't say the kingdom of God is about giving flip flops to those who are inebriated after Saturday night reveling 
The kingdom of God is as a man going out to sow seed. If you want to put it differently, but I think this is what it's saying. The kingdom of God is getting the word of God into the hearts and minds of men and women. God's work is done through his word. And it's getting the word into the thinking and the attitude of those whom we're meeting. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel to non-Christians who are listening. We are wanting to sow seed into people's hearts. So so what are the things that we, we want to talk about? What are the things that are essential for the gospel? Now it's interesting, because I have thoughts and ideas about all sorts of things. Uh, Brexit or remain. I strongly believe that, well you don't need to know, do you? But I, I strongly believe what I do believe. Or capital punishment. I, I believe the Bible teaches something about capital punishment and I feel... But actually, that isn't what the kingdom of God is about. I have thoughts about this, that and the other. But they are, as it were, periphery things. Do you remember D.L. Moody's famous dictum, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So what is the main thing that we're to keep the main thing? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, Jesus gives us the, the Great Commission. Now, we're used to reading it in Matthew and Mark, but in Luke, Luke gives us a little bit more information as to what it is we're to go into all the world and preach. He says, look, you're to take it to Jerusalem, your neighbours, and you're to take it to the nations, but what is it? And he has four things that are essential if we're to be proclaiming the gospel. He said, go and tell them about my sufferings, about my resurrection, about repentance, and about forgiveness of sins. So yes, I have thoughts and ideas about all sorts of issues. But actually what I am seeking to communicate, the good seed I am wanting to plant into the hearts of men and women, are these four truths. That the Lord Jesus loved us and died for us. He bore our sin in his own body on the tree. He was buried and he rose. And God commands all men, all women, all people everywhere to repent. And as one repents there is forgiveness of sins. Now the trouble is we're living in a very sceptical, cynical age, aren't we? And and there is a lot of pressure, sort of intimidation into silence. If you're working for the government, in the National Health Service, in education, in social services, or in civil service, the the pressure is immense. I I was talking to a guy who's involved with the Pilgrim Friends Society um, on Saturday and I, I, I said how long have you been doing this and he gave the answer and I said what were you doing before he said I worked for the home office but he said I could not cope with it they would not let me speak about Christ and I couldn't continue interesting isn't it and yet we are rubbing shoulders with day by day colleagues at work people I don't know in the school playground or at the school gate or in the shops in the offices on the bus on the train our neighbours, our relatives, we are rubbing shoulders with men and women who in 100 years from now, all of them will be in eternity. And they'll either be with the Lord or lost forever. Do you know Rodin's famous sculpture of the thinker? We have a, a model of that. It's actually on our bedroom <laughs> bedroom next to the window and uh, I found it a very very powerful sculpture Rodin who was not a believer at all he was a humanist he sculptured that and he tells us what the thinker is thinking about most people think it's, it's just philosophical but Rodin tells us no 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 it was actually sculptured to go above a long sculpture which is in Paris called the gates of hell and it was meant to go there it never did go there but um, He says, the thinker is thinking about the plight of people in hell. And I wonder whether we've lost some of that in our sort of casual society, which is, I don't know, just be mediocre about everything. Don't get too excited. Don't be be passionate about anything. Don't be over the top. And we don't want to come across as over the top. Yet men and women all around us are lost and yet have an eternal destiny. They need to hear this gospel. 
So here is the Lord Jesus at the end of his ministry on earth about to ascend to, to heaven and he gives the great commission. The great commission is not to discuss theology over a latte. The great commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But we take it so lightly. And yet, you know, when we focus on the issues which Scripture says, Jesus said, are so central, when we focus on those, there is a power. Romans 1, verse 16, you all know it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. So Jesus is saying, or rather, Paul is saying, and of course it's the word of God, saying, look, the gospel is not just a philosophy to be discussed or an idea to be debated and mused on. It is a power to be unleashed. You speak to somebody about Jesus dying and bearing our sin in his own body on the tree and then being laid in the grave and rising from the dead. They may scorn, they may mock, but there's a power there. And God, the Holy Spirit, takes hold of his holy word and applies it to the hearts of those who are listening. So I, I would beg us, first of all, to be people, yes, who are intentional, but going out each day with good seed. We know what we want to, sh to share and we're determined to share it. Then second truth from this little parable. And that is that we are to scatter and sow seed. The greatest act of kindness that we can show to anybody is to introduce them to Jesus Christ. And the greatest act of tyranny is to know the gospel and yet not share it, to keep quiet, to be reserved. We, we don't want to, I don't know, lose a friendship or lose our reputation. We don't, we don't uh, 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 I don't know, hurt people. And, and yet this is such a precious truth to go into the world day by day, to sow and to scatter this idea of intentionality. So every morning in my quiet time, I pray, Lord, would you lead me to somebody with whom I can talk today? Uh, sometimes, yes, I, I, I miss a day or two. But I'm out looking day by day. Now, of course, there's a different approach to the different type of people. There are the people we'll never meet again. And so, you know, you sort of try to get into conversation with them. And, and I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to make a beeline to talk about the things that I really want to talk about. Let me tell you one of my favorite stories. I'd been speaking down in Hastings for a weekend. And I was driving back late on Sunday evening. It was about half past 11 on Sunday night. And I was a few miles from home. And my warning light was, was on saying that I'm about to run out of fuel. Well, to be honest, I'm quite strict about Sunday. I don't like to buy anything on Sunday and I don't want to fill it with petrol or diesel or whatever on Sunday. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to risk it. I'm going to go. No, I thought I don't want to get stuck. Then it'll be even worse. So I decided to, to turn into a garage and um, I filled up. And having filled up, I went into the kiosk and, and what do they call those people who work in kiosks and garages? And what do they call it? Fuel attack cashier, thank you. It's lovely to meet naive people like this, isn't it? I call them tax collectors, but you can call them <laughs> fuel attendants if you want. Anyway, I went into the tax collector, the, fuel, the cashier, sorry. And, um, you know, I, I took out the mortgage to pay for the fuel. And, um, and I just happened to say to the guy, I said, um, I, are you on duty all night now? He said, yeah, I'm on a 15-hour shift. I said, oh, wow, poor you. I suppose that meant you couldn't go to church today. <laughs> to which he said, <laughs> to which he just said, I am a Hindu. <laughs> so I just said, oh, it doesn't matter. Everybody's welcome to church, you see. Well, we began talking. In fact, we talked till quarter past midnight. And I did think, you know, if I'd just gone in and witnessed to him first, then I could have filled up and it would have been Monday. No, no. <laughs> I'm only joking. <laughs> Do you know, I, I must have met with that man at least 30 times late at night in the next 18 months. And I'd go in, and if there was nobody else behind, I'd, I'd do a little Bible study with him. And it all came about through a bit of mischievous sort of cheeky comment, hoping to bring in something about the gospel. I, and I would say, look, just talk. Just talk. And we live in the north of England. It is so easy to talk. You go down to London. Have you seen them on the, the tubes? <laughs> and, and they just look angry at each other. And nobody ever talks. Just talk. In a bus queue. 
the supermarket checkout, the people you just bump in, just talk, talk about anything, talk about everything, talk about, I don't know, the weather, the wedding on Saturday, talk about what you've seen on Saturday, just talk. But as you talk, in a nice, not over the top, not aggressive, but in a winsome sort of way, seek to introduce something about the Lord. And so I have a few standard lines, if I may just share them. But they're just ideas. I'm not saying this is how you should do it. But be chatting for a while. And I said, do you know, it's interesting you'd say that. I was reading the Bible the other day. I don't know whether you ever read the Bible. I love the Bible. I was reading the Bible the other day. And I came across this sentence that Jesus said. And I'll perhaps quote John 3.16. Or you're just chatting about, do you know, it's interesting you say that. I was in church the other day, our minister said, I don't know whether you ever go to church, but I really enjoy church. Our minister just said, well, actually he was quoting from Jesus. For God's, and do you know that sort of introduction? It's not difficult. You just chat. And as you chat, you're looking to see their reaction. Are they disapproving? Or is there an openness? Is there a willingness just to, just to talk about things? Now, by all means, be cheeky. This is one of my favourite stories. It's from years ago, and some of you may, may have heard this before. But actually, it happened in a very similar way a few, a few years later. But Dot and I were in the January sales in Wakefield. And um, we, we were there, and, you know, doing, doing what we were doing, looking for this, that and the other. And we eventually came to a major road, and we tried to cross this road. But there were cars coming everywhere. And uh, there was another guy on the other side of the road. I reckon he was about 65. And he was trying to get to where we were. Obviously, we were trying to get to where he was. And we were waiting, cars, cars, cars. And eventually, this man just just lost patience. And he just stuck out his hand like this. And he just walked. And all the cars screeching and hooting. It was a very funny moment. But he walked right next to where we were. And he just said, cars everywhere. I bet there are cars in the Sahara Desert. So I said, I hadn't planned this. I just said, well, I'll tell you where there aren't any cars, sir. And he said, where? I said, sir, there are no cars in heaven. And if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, you'll be there. And you sort of, when you say these things, you sort of think, where did that come from? (laughs) I'll tell you what happened. He just stopped dead like that. And he said, I'm just coming from burying my 96-year-old mother. And she was always telling me things like that. And I said, sir, just a moment. And sure enough, his, his mother was a born-again woman, but he'd never been converted. Now, some of you will say, oh, well, Roger, it's all right for you. You, you know, you, you do things like that. We're just not like that. But we can all talk. We can all just chatter. We can all just be friendly. And it's amazing who is willing just to open up. So I found myself, I don't know why I was there, but I found myself in the Indian takeaway shop last Thursday. And, (laughs) hey, do you know those Muslim men, they're very open to talk. They really are. You're waiting. And if you have a really good conversation, you think, oh, I hope this will take a long time. And if you're not, you think, I wish you'd hurry up. But but there's an openness. There's a willingness. Or on Friday night, I was sitting on a bus going from the centre of Leicester to... um, to, to a young people's meeting on the outskirts of Leicester. And a lady came and sat next to me. And I thought, oh, how did I get into conversation with her? And the bus journey was going on and on, and I wasn't, we weren't talking at all. It's, it's always a bit embarrassing when you're a man talking to a lady like this. And then she yawned. One almighty yawn. <laughs> and I said, oh, wow, have you had a tough day? She said, yeah, I'm just looking forward to getting home and putting up my feet. I said, do you know where I'm going? Go on, she said. <laughs> well, away I went, you see. And uh, yeah, I don't think she was that interested, but she took a tract at the end. And, uh, but there are all the time, we're just bumping into people. And it's this idea of prayerful intentionality. Now, we can't be like that with our neighbours or our relatives or our colleagues There needs with those people to be a sort of prayerful looking for the Lord to open the door. And it may take a long time before that door of opportunity comes. We lived in the house where we're in now for 16 years before I witnessed to my next door neighbours in a thorough sort of way. We talked to them once or twice, but they'd never shown any interest. We'd invited them to one or two things, but they'd never really shown any interest. And then one day I was in in my study, which is our garage really and I was just looking out and I saw my next door neighbour at the end of our little drive and she was crying so I quickly went out and said um, 
what's the matter? And she said, my sister has just died. Well, we talked. And the next day I went round to see her and her husband. And I gave them a book and we talked together. I don't know that they're interested even now in the things of the Lord. But it was that waiting for the right moment. Now, in doing that, there needs to be prayerfulness. And if I may, I just want to talk about something that's quite a burden for my heart. To those of you who are getting on in years and are grandparents, we really need to be crying out to the Lord for our grandchildren. I think if we knew what they were being taught at school, we would tremble. We really would. I would urge you to pray for your grandchildren. There are some great Christian books for children downstairs. Give them Christian books. Even if your children are not saved, you can pray, obviously, for your children, but you can pray for your grandchildren. And then, I don't know, somehow devise an opportunity when they get to a certain age, 12, 13, 14, when you are going to give them a treat. Not only maybe something they want to eat or whatever, but you're going to give them the best treat of all and talk to them about the Lord Jesus. Uh, if they enjoy Pizza Express, say, do you know, as your grandma or your granddad, I'd love to give you a treat. Maybe a day or two after your birthday. What, what food do you like best? And let's go together. And then a heart to heart that's not oppressive, but prayerful and loving and explain to them the gospel. And just say to them, you know, you need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've been praying that for you. We, we can somehow feel we, we have no influence. But I remember when I was 10, my grandmother came from the Middle East and stayed with us for three months. And I can remember seeing her explain the gospel through the wordless book, which they have on sale downstairs, the gospel to my older brother. It was my grandmother who paid for me to go to Lebanon to have a holiday in 1965 and it was there I was converted because she knew I was, ta I was being taken into a, uh, an evangelical sort of community and I heard the gospel and I was converted. And then whether it's husband or wife or parents or children or colleagues, just pray, Lord, for the right moment. And my experience is that th the ideal moment is one-to-one. -one. If there's a little bit group of them, it can be hard to witness to them really openly. You may find yourself in a situation where, yes, you, you are witnessing to a group, but ideally one-to-one, -one, and there can be a new openness. But when there's a group, what's quite fascinating is that sometimes one person is quite antagonistic and another person says nothing, but the one who's saying nothing is probably the one who's taking it all on board and listening. That's, that's my experience. And just because somebody gives the initial appearance of not being interested, don't assume that they are not interested. Let me give an illustration, if I may. Um, my wife and I have twice been to Prague, and I used to say Prague is the most wonderful city in the world, but then I went to Venice. Oh, I fell in love with Venice. And I've been twice there. I, I'd love to go back, but we'll leave that for the moment. But they have these things in, in Venice. And I looked at them and I said to Dot, why on earth do people buy these? And then I ended up buying one. I'll tell you why. <laughs> I was in a situation, Dot and I had gone into a, a paper-making shop in Venice and we got speaking to the lady behind the counter. As it happened, she was Australian and we began to talk and she'd been involved with Christians but she'd been put off. I won't go into all the story. But um, the more she talked, the initial disinterest, the face, the facade she put on began to drop and she opened up. And we had a lovely conversation. I was able to give her a New Testament and it was very thrilling. In fact, it was such a good conversation. I said to her, would you allow me to pray for you? And she said, yes. And so I prayed. I didn't pray a long prayer. But as I prayed, my eyes were shut. I always think we should close our eyes when we're praying. Never quite understand that mentality of keeping your eyes open because there are too many distractions. But we'll leave that. I, I had closed my eyes, but I felt... I felt the tangible putting on of the mask again. And I quickly brought the prayer to a close and said my amen and some customers had come in. And she was embarrassed because there was a bit of a crowd. And I understand that. 
Or I'll give you another example. For eight years, I taught in one school. I went to another school for three years. And in this first school, I had the most amazing opportunities. I used to teach, preach the gospel to, to the school assembly twice every term, 1,350 pupils, and I had 25 minutes with them. What amazing opportunities. And I just taught the gospel to the pupils. And I witnessed, I think, to every single member of staff at different times. I'll come on to another one a little bit later on. But there was one guy, Bob. I, I worked with him in team teaching, and we got on very well. He was a humorous guy, but when there was a crowd... He always teased me, always mocked me, you know, here comes Holy Joe and all this sort of thing. And he'd have some provocative question he'd ask me. And I never spoke to him one-to-one. What I now realise is that all that time he was wearing a mask. Because eventually I was leaving, I was going on to another school. And they had a do for me at lunchtime and I had just two final lessons to give. In the final lesson, Bob knocked on the door, Roger, have you got a minute? And we went out into the corridor together and he just said, Roger, I want to shake your hand. I just feel as though my hope of ever getting to heaven is going with you. And I said, oh, Bob, why did you never say anything like that before? Well, he didn't say because I was wearing a mask, but he could have done. As it happens, um, thanks, Tony. As it happens, my wife and I had a couple of meals with him, but we didn't get anywhere. And then eventually, strangely, about two years ago, I was giving out tracts at the Great Yorkshire Show and I bumped into him again, which was now still not a Christian. But it's the idea of the mask, the facade. Just because they're giving the impression they're not interested, you do not know what is going on in their, their hearts. My experience as well is that personal work is hard work until they ask you a question. So you're trying to talk with somebody about the Lord and it's, it's an uphill slog until they ask you a question. They say, for example, oh, come on, Roger, you don't really believe all of that, do you? Well, that's what my eardrum hears. But I'll tell you what my brain hears. My brain hears, Roger, carry on talking. They're asking questions. They're saying we're interested. We're willing to talk a little bit. So personal work is hard work until they ask a question. Once they ask a question, then we need to ask questions to probe a little bit and see what's going on in their mind. Sowing and scattering seed. My motto last year was a sower went forth to sow. And every single day I wanted to go out and just sow gospel seed. Can I again just give another little sort of practical tip? And I do want to be practical as well as looking at this passage. This is my greatest evangelistic tool. It's called a wallet. But it's got something much more valuable than 50 pound notes in. It's got tracks loads of them it's got tracks there it's got tracks there it's got tracks there and there but it's also got tracks there and there and i don't know whether you know but wallets have secret compartments and it's got tracks there and tracks there it's also got various cars with john 316 etc and this goes with me everywhere and when I'm talking to people like that Sikh lady on Friday in, in Leicester, during the conversation I began to open up and think, which one is the right one for her to give her? Uh, it's just being ready. By the way, I do have some of these wallets for sale, if you're interested. But, uh, but that, that's not ten of those. That's just from the back of my car. Anyway, but uh, I, I, I love this wallet. It's so useful. Uh, just being ready. So I was in London a few weeks ago. I was waiting for a guy, and he was late. So what do you do? Do you just stand and twiddle your thumbs? Well, no, I went to my wallet, I pulled out my tracks, I was on London Bridge, and I started to offer tracks to various people. Can I give you a little Christian leaflet to read? Some said no, most said yes, and one guy took one and then came back and said, can I ask you something about this? And away we went. In the, in the end, I kept the other guy waiting because now he'd seen us talking and he didn't feel he could interrupt. It's redeeming the time. It's, it's, it's making use of opportunities. You find yourself in a railway station. You find yourself killing time here. Or well, to have something just to pass on and seek to get into conversation. I suppose what I'm talking about now, if I can go to the book of Ruth in your thinking, is gleaning. Billy Graham was a reaper. You know, he preached somewhere, 35,000 people came there. I've never talked to 35,000 people in my life. But 35,000 people come and hear Billy Graham preach. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He takes his sickle and whoosh, And he's got a great big bundle of people who profess faith. Praise God for that. I, I'm not that sort of reaper, but I'm a gleaner. Do you remember Ruth went into the 
fields to glean. I came across a lovely outline in an old book about Ruth gleaning. To glean, you have to have your eyes open. You do, you're looking for opportunities. To glean, you have to stoop. You can't glean with a stiff back. You have to stoop. It's hard work and uh, uh, it's tiring. But the gleaner, says the old book, um, gathers one by one and each, each thing she gleans helps to make a bundle. So it's one by one, but eventually it becomes a bundle. And then the gleaner is as careful to retain as she is to obtain. So I don't want to just, as it were, pray with people and say, right, you converted. No, no, no. I want to see them followed up. I want to see it's a genuine decision if they're going to trust Christ. And I want to see them integrated into a church fellowship, which is going to care for them and look after them. So sow and scatter the seed. Thirdly, wait and water the seed. In Christian work, impatience is a big mistake. And and seeking to win people to Christ, we can become incredibly impatient. You ask my wife, what are Roger's ambitions for life? And I think she'd probably say, because I've heard her say it, to to win the world by yesterday. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's right. I want to see everybody converted. I want to see everybody saved. And I want to see it done quickly. But actually, the way God works in people's hearts is beyond our understanding. And, And that's what this parable is, is saying, you know, the, the sower has sown his seed, he goes to sleep, but then there's growth. He doesn't understand what, quite what's going on, but the, there's growth. You just do not know what is going on in somebody's mind and somebody's heart. You have sown a tiny little seed into their hearts and minds, and now you're praying and who knows what's going on? I mentioned that school where I was at. I was there for eight years. And um, I'd been there a couple of terms when a maths teacher was appointed. His name, he won't mind me saying, it's David Sharp. He was an atheist. But he and I sort of connected. And so he and his wife and my wife and I began to meet once every so often and have a meal together. And of course, we'd talk about the things of God as well as the gossip of the school and all the rest. We'd chatter away and we enjoyed each other's companies, but, company, but he was an atheist. I was there for eight years altogether, and when I left, you know, we kept in touch, but he was an atheist. I went to another school, taught there for three years, and we kept in touch, but he was an atheist. But we kept on with David and Mark. You can't do this with everybody, but we did with them for 27 years. And we were having a meal together in Brig House, and my wife just said to David and his wife, do you know, our church is starting something called Christianity Explored. I think you'd enjoy it. Why don't you come along? And he said, well, if we come, can we bring Katie? So Dot and I looked at each other and said, yes, you can bring Katie. So sure enough, he and his wife and their little Scottish terrier called Katie (laughs) came along along to Christianity Explore. I don't know that any other dog has done the course, but this, this one did. And the first week, I'm not exaggerating, he just sat there like this. He ne- not the dog, no, no. <laughs> David, he just, you know. But the next week he came back. I didn't think he would, but he came back. And this time he lifted up his head, the man again, okay. And um, he lifted up his head and then he began to engage. At the end of the course, he was an atheist, but he'd made some friends who began to go, you know, every so often for a Saturday walk in the Dales, and he would go and they would chat. And one day he phoned me up and said, Roger, can you get me a Bible, please? So I got him a Bible. Sixteen weeks later, he phoned me up and he said, Roger, I've read it. And I said, that's great. Where have you been reading? He said, I've read it. I said, what do you mean? You've read it all. And he said, yes, I started at Genesis and finished at Revelation. I've just read it. And I said, has it convinced you? He said, no, not at all. I'm still an atheist. But he said, I have heard you talk about Bible commentaries. Can you get me a commentary, please? <laughs> so I got him the new Bible commentary, 1,600 pages, double-columned, and I gave it to him. 
Four months later, he phoned up and said, Roger, I've read it. I said, David, nobody reads commentaries. You, you get them to put on your shelf and impress people or to, you know, proper, but you don't read them. He'd read every word. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, gradually, gradually, he came to faith. It took 28 years. And he and his wife were, <laughs> his wife were baptized. And for a baptismal present, we gave them Gruden's systematic theology. <laughs> and he phoned me up and he said, Roger, Margaret and I love Gruden. Every night before we go to sleep, we sit up in bed and read a chapter together. <laughs> but you see, all those years, but God was at work. Now, you can't follow up everybody with that sort of intensity because we meet so many. But the seed is sown and we wait and we water. Or if I'm going to give a biblical illustration of this, and I've had so much encouragement from this, Ezekiel chapter 37. You remember Ezekiel, this rather maverick um, prophet. I love Ezekiel. He's he's delightfully eccentric, isn't he? And I I don't know why. I just... Anyway, I like him. And um, uh, he was taken to a valley of dry bones. So he looked ahead, he looked beside, and he looked behind, and all he could see were dead, dry, decaying bones. And then God spoke to him and said, Ezekiel, son of man, Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? Now, come on, what would you say if God said to you, when you see bones all around, can these dry bones live? This is almighty God, but it doesn't really look as though they can. Well, he can't really say yes because he doesn't really believe it. And he can't say no because it is the Lord asking him. So he says, Lord, you know. (laughs) It's a great diplomatic answer. Then God spoke and said, son of man, preach, speak to the bones. So he began speaking to these dead, dry, decaying bones. If you don't know what that feels like, do ask your minister later on. What does it feel like to speak to dead, dry, decaying bones? And, um, and, 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 and as he spoke, there was a movement and a rattling, and bones started to come together to bone. So how does it go? The, the foot bone joined to the ankle bone, the ankle bone to the leg bone, the leg bone to the thigh bone. So, and suddenly he's surrounded by this mighty army of skeletons. So he just keeps preaching. And these skeletons become covered with with tendons and muscles and skin. Now there is an army of corpses, of dead bodies. And then God says, Ezekiel, speak to the wind, the breath, the spirit. And he speaks to the wind, the breath, the spirit. And the spirit comes and transforms that army of corpses into a mighty living army. Now, you read on, and this is talking about the nation of Israel and God's purposes still for the nation of Israel, but there's a principle here. The word of God, which Ezekiel preached, plus the spirit of God equals new life or new birth. We scatter gospel seed and we wait and we water because we pray, God, would you take hold of that seed? Would you speak through what's just been accomplished uh, by me scattering it? And, and Lord, would you do something? And the word of God plus the spirit of God equals new life. We just never know. So when I sit on a train or a tube in London or a bus, I always just put a I put a tract underneath my bottom so that when I stand up and walk away, there's a tract. But I pray, Lord, would you just speak through that? Or you're sitting down for your five o'clock meal and the phone goes and you pick up the phone and it's somebody trying to sell you life assurance. Isn't that wonderful? They, they are in Bangladesh. I've never been to Bangladesh in my life. They are paying for the phone call and as you know, coming from where I come from, that's quite important. They're paying and um, they want to talk to me. So Rob phones from Calcutta. <laughs> and uh, I began to talk, I forgot what he was trying to sell me, but I began to talk t- about the Lord to him. And he talked for a few minutes, and then he suddenly said, Oh, I must go now, my supervisor's coming. Bing! And that was that. <laughs> Ten minutes later, the phone went. I pick his up, he's gone! <laughs> <laughs> and we talked. 
In fact, night by night he used to phone me up like this and we'd talk. Eventually I sent some, some literatures to him, some books, and he phoned me up a bit later on and said, there's a spelling mistake on page 72. So I checked and there was. And eventually he said, I'm going to university now. I've enjoyed talking. I don't know that he was ever converted. I sent him a New Testament and some books. But do you know that Christmas... A few months later, he phoned out. I said, I just wanted to say Happy Christmas, Roger. <laughs> and who knows? Just, just there. In, we, we scatter, we sow, and we pray. Now, I would beg us all to do this not in an aggressive way, not in a brash, brazen way. Remember, the people to whom we are speaking and sharing and sowing gospel seed into their hearts are not our enemies they are as we once were. We want them to be as we are now. We love them. Do you know that phrase? All sorts of people are supposed to have said it initially. Be kind. You do not know what battles people are fighting. I was speaking at a, a sports camp. Me. Do I look? Anyway, never mind. I was speaking to young people at this sports camp. And I did five talks each evening on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. On Wednesday... One of the guys wanted to talk to me. He was 15. He was a lovely boy. And uh, he said, I want to talk privately. So we just moved away and away from the crowd. And <coughs> I said, you know, I said, what's, what's your name? And he said, my name's Jonah. And I said, okay, well, what's the trouble, Jonah? This is what he said. I'll never forget this moment. He said, Roger, 11 years ago, you buried my dad. And I said, are you Jonah so-and-so? And he said, yes. I said, oh, well, I did. You're right. He said, Roger, I miss him so much, but I don't know anything about him. So I said, well, Jonah, let me tell you about your dad. He was one of the loveliest Christian men that I ever knew. And he would be thrilled that you are here now. And we began to talk. But when I was speaking to that crowd of teenagers, I had no idea he was there. Reminds me of the the Leeds Hospital chaplain who said to me that he used to go and visit one particular Christian who was dying and he'd go every day and he'd pray with him, read the Bible and then he'd go to the bed next to him and say, is there anything I can do for you? And the man said, no. Well, day after day, anything I can do? No. And one day, is there anything I can do for you? No, but there are some things I wish you could undo for me. That's what he said. The people to whom we are sharing the gospel have all sorts of pains and anxieties and burdens they can have the facade of being everything okay thank you but we do not know what is going on in their hearts and minds we are not out to win an argument we are out to introduce people to the lord jesus christ and then one fourth truth i want to draw from this parable we are to harvest and hoard hold on to the seed. Jesus talks about, you know, when the time of harvest comes, you put in the sickle and you gather the harvest. And this is very hard. Last year I mentioned that my motto was a sower went forth to sow. This year my motto, taken from the words of the Lord Jesus, I want him to make me a fisher of men. I don't just want to sow, I want to harvest. I don't want to just fish so I'm influencing fish. I want to actually catch the fish. I'd love to have a net and get a huge shoal of fish. But if I just got one here and one there, whether it's a small little tiddler or a big, whatever a big fish is, you know, I want to be a fisher of men. And I'm praying specifically for that. And I wonder, I wonder whether we have the ability to actually lead somebody to Christ. The Christian is not to, if I can use the title, call the midwife. If somebody's interested in becoming a Christian, they're asking us questions, they want to know. We don't have to call some senior Christian. Praise God for ministers and pastors, but we don't rely on them to be the only one who can lead a soul to Christ. But there does need to be spiritual wisdom. A midwife doesn't try and bring the baby to birth before it's time. And I've known this, people who've, you know, sort of imposed on folk the need to pray a prayer and get right with God and the spiritual damage that does. I remember years ago, I was running a group of Young Life 
with some others in Garforth, east of Leeds. And there were two girls who came for maybe six, eight months. And then we took them to an evangelistic meeting. And it was a fine meeting in many ways. But they went forward at the appeal and, and I was thrilled. But they weren't quite ready. And they knew they weren't. But the person who counseled them insisted they prayed. And in the car back, they, they said what had happened. And you know, we never saw them again. Now the Lord knows and it's in his hands, but it, it sort of haunted me as that. I don't want to be so reticent, so, as it were, unbelieving, that I feel, oh, nobody could ever be converted through my labours, my witness, my seed sowing. But I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to be like a child, you know, constantly digging away the, the earth to see how the seed is progressing. This is God's work. We sow and we wait. And yes, we long for that opportunity to, to harvest and to hoard, to hold on to, to keep them. <clears throat> Having a sense of expectation. And if I'm being honest with you, I, I sort of fear I've lost this a little bit in my personal work. In missions, I expect people to be converted. And there's been prayer and preparation and people are brought along and it's very conducive. People are, they're listening, etc. I expect people to be converted. Do I expect somebody to be converted through my witness today? To, I don't know, to a garage attendant, to a shopkeeper, to somebody I happen to meet on the street, to the guy who has a fish and chip shop or whatever. I don't know that I do. Maybe I've lost something. You know that lovely story, whether it's true or not, of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who had one of his students say to him, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm preaching the gospel Sunday by Sunday, but nobody's ever converted. To which apparently Spurgeon said, now you don't expect people to be converted every week, do you? He said, no. He said, well, that's why they're not. <laughs> that sense of, Lord, I'm going out into this day. There's a needy world out there. And yes, I want to sow, but I'd love to harvest as well. I wonder if we really pray to that end. Lead me to some soul today. Oh, teach me, Lord, just what to say. Friends of mine are lost in sin and cannot find the way. Few there are who seem to care and few there are who pray. Melt my heart and fill my life to win some soul today. Do you remember singing that years ago? We used to sing it in Young Life. And um, you say, Roger, we're living in tough times. We are. And there is a spiritual dearth at the moment. I've just begun reading in two Kings, but last week I was in one Kings. And I came across this, chapter 20, verse 28. The Syrians were defeated in battle. But if you look up chapter 20, verse 28, God gives the reason. And it's because they were blaspheming and misrepresenting who the Lord is. He's not the Lord of the, the valleys. He's only the Lord of the hills. And it was a blasphemous misrepresentation of God. And so God defeats them. We're living in an age when the BBC, the government, the educationalists, generally speaking, are misrepresenting and blaspheming the Lord. But where sin abounds, does grace much more about... I know it's written for individuals, but... Wasn't that the case in the time of Wesley and Whitfield and, and what happened for the next century and a half? Sin abounding, but grace abounded much. Could God save your neighbour? About three, four, five years ago, I forget exactly now, the Leicester Mercury had a front page picture of a, a house with broken windows looking completely neglected and their headline on the front page was Neighbours from Hell down their street was a Christian I, I forgot whether he was an odd job man or a carpenter or whatever else but he was very stirred by this and a day or two later he went up to the house and knocked on the door, he'd never seen them to talk to before but he said I saw the newspaper headline, I just want to say I really feel for you but look I am an odd job man or whatever he said I'd love to help you just get this sorted out. And it'd be my privilege. And they allowed him. And he won them to Christ. There are people we can write off. But God can work. God can work. And I'm just begging us to have this intentionality that says, Lord, today, I'd love to speak to somebody. Or maybe just write a postcard. 
with something evangelistic and pop it in the post to encourage somebody, point them to Christ, or a letter. There'll be a little gift to somebody. And Talking about gifts, you know, when Christmas comes, okay, it's, I think it's about 32 weeks to Christmas, so it's nearly here, but it's... Um, <laughs> Hey, you've got great resource just downstairs and some of these books are so cheap. Why not wrap them up with a box of chocolates and give them to your postman, the milkman, the who comes to your house, the bailiffs, whoever it is. You know, just, just give them away as presents. And every so often, something special, those occurrences will happen in your life. I was talking to David Ford. I can't see him now, but is he here? David, there we are. He was 50. He looks much older, but he's, um, he, he was 50 last week. So what did he do? He put on a, a special event for how many of your guests? 76. 76. And they had a program. They had fun. They had food. And then he shared his, his testimony with these 76 relatives and friends. Now, I don't know. Some of you look as though it's long since you had your 50th birthday. But it's... Uh, wouldn't it be great to invite 90 friends to your 90th? Or your 80th? Or, or you've got a wedding anniversary? Or you're moving house? Or you're leaving a job? Or you're starting a new job? I know a teenager when he was leaving, leaving um, Sixth Form College, he invited the two groups of students that he was with and all the lecturers to come for a barbecue. And about 60 came. And the gospel was preached. The man was invited to share the gospel. But it's interesting. It wasn't me, actually. I'm sorry. But I got Verna Wright, the professor of medicine, to, um, to speak and share the gospel. And yesterday, on the politics program, they were interviewing one of these political leaders, the thinkers. And he was at that barbecue all those years ago. And, yeah, okay, they don't want to interview me about my political thoughts. I don't blame them, but I think they're better than his. We'll leave that, though. But, it's, uh, but you just don't know. And just suggesting this attitude that says, we have the most valuable seed in the world. Let's scatter it. Let's sow it. And then we'll wait and we'll water. And who knows, with the grace of God, we may just be able to harvest and hoard and all for the glory of the Lord Jesus I'd like to close with a prayer it's a prayer again I learned when I was in young life it's a lovely lovely hymn and not particularly known but this is the final verse and I'd like to pray it as a prayer for us and I'll pray the chorus as well so let's pray and then Tony will announce the final hymn <coughs> dear Lord I ask for the eyes that see Deep down to the world's sore need. I ask for a love that holds not back, but pours out itself indeed. I want the passionate power of prayer that yearns for the great crowd's soul. I want to go amongst the fainting sheep and tell them, my Lord makes whole. And then the chorus. Oh, let me look at the crowd as my Saviour did, till my eyes with tears grow dim. Let me look till I pity the wandering sheep and love them for love of him. For I pray in Jesus' name.